Well, I'm very thankful for this opportunity to preach in Foundation once again. We were gone for two years in Israel, but um, talking to Mark, telling him that I was going to be able to come back to Los Angeles, really we came back to Grace Community Church because we wanted to be back in Foundation. Foundation is our church home. Foundation is where we really wanted to come back. So there's a lot of new faces to me. Um, I'm probably a new face to a lot of you, but I'm looking forward to getting to know you, getting forward to serve with you all here. Please turn with me to Luke chapter 6, verse 27. So turn your Bibles to Luke 6. This is the Sermon on the Mount in Luke's account of the gospel. Luke 6. We're going to be reading verses 27 through 38. Luke 6, 27. This is our Lord Jesus Christ speaking. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. And do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Have you heard the term schadenfreude? That's my attempt at a German term. We can call it schadenfreude. That might be more familiar to you. Schadenfreude. Have you heard of schadenfreude? No? Some some nodding of the head. Okay, raise the hand in the back. Very nice. Oh, that was a German, so that makes sense. (laughs) Schadenfreude is a German word which describes the sensation of joy one feels at someone else's misfortune. Joy when someone else experiences pain or suffering. That's what schadenfreude is. Now, schadenfreude can be light and relatively harmless. It could be between friends. It could be between sports teams. In 2015, a German research team, they were fiddling German, they were studying schadenfreude, conducted a study of the differences between how we express our emotion between pure joy and schadenfreude. They did this by taking some German soccer fans, and they showed them clips of penalty shots. Now, I'm no big soccer um, fan, so I don't really know how all this works, but as I understand it, the Germans are massive rivals of the Dutch national team. Is that true? Yeah, thank, thank you very much. Okay, so they played shots of the German team, successfully and unsuccessfully kicking penalty shots, and they played shots of the Dutch team successfully and unsuccessfully kicking shots. And then they asked them afterwards to rate their levels of joy 
when they watch these kicks. And pretty much everyone said, I experienced the most joy when I watched my team win. But the team had um, some electric pads fitted up to their faces, measuring their muscle responses when they smiled, when they reacted. And actually what they found was that these soccer fans, they did smile. They did get happy when their team successfully kicked a goal. But much more, they were over abundantly joyful when they saw the Dutch team failing. They smiled more broadly. Their muscles in their mouth were more tensely reacted to the Dutch team's losses, and they smiled more broadly. And so clearly, schadenfreude is a real emotion that is very strong. It's very hard to hide. But this pleasure at someone else's misery can be more serious than a soccer team. I think of an example of the COVID pandemic, when uh, you could see that there was a lot of debate on both sides on how we should respond to COVID. And I know you're not supposed to read the comment section, but I delved into the comment section on news articles. And you could see people were openly excited for anti-vaxxers and COVID deniers when they died. People were hoping that people would die if they didn't follow what certain people said. This is the darker side of schadenfreude. This, is, this shows us what actually underlies this idea that you are taking pleasure in someone else's misery. What it really shows is that schadenfreude is a lack of love for someone else. What it really is, is a measure of hatred. And especially when you believe that the truth is on your side, when you believe you're in the right, it's very easy to justify all sorts of hatred, all sorts of behavior that flows out of hatred. But the question is, does this sort of attitude exist among us? Should this sort of hatred for people that we know, according to scripture, are wrong, should it exist among us? Should Christians be characterized by hatred of our enemies? So today we're going to talk about the stewardship of your enemies, the stewardship of your enemies. We all have enemies, whether they're real or imagined, and whether it's caused by us or caused by someone else. And if we truly believe God is sovereign, then we believe that he has orchestrated every moment in our lives. He's orchestrated every relationship in our lives, meaning he has put those enemies that you have in your life. He has put those enemies that you disagree with in the political sphere, at your work, at home. And in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord tells us exactly how we are to steward the enemies that God has granted to us, primarily by loving them. So if we look back at Luke 6, 27, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Love your enemies. As simple as it is, this is the core of what we're focusing on tonight. We have to start here because we really have to define what the issue is. What is Jesus getting at? Why is this something that the apostles felt they needed to repeat so often to the church? The Lord Jesus tells us to love our enemies. Now, if you've read through the New Testament, if you've been going to church and listening to sermons for any amount of time, you're probably not surprised by a command to love, right? You know that in John 13, Jesus says that Christians will be known by their love for one another. You know that Paul has called us many times that we are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. You can see that in Romans 12. Paul commands even that we do everything in love in 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Now, that's all well and good. It's vital to the church because love is the mark of someone who truly knows God. But 
Jesus doesn't just tell us to love one another in the church. That is a given. That's something that we know Paul has stressed so much as he's trying to build up the churches that he founded. But when Jesus spoke of the Good Samaritan, what was he teaching? He was teaching we're to love everyone. We're to love our neighbor, and that means everyone around us. So who is your neighbor? Jesus says, that means it's every person in your life. That's your landlord. That's your coworker. That's your cousin. That's the police. That's your local council members. You could go on and on because it includes everyone in your life. So maybe you think, okay, I can square with that. My landlord's not that bad. He fixed my, my heating really fast last month. I was really appreciative of that. I can love him. My coworkers are mostly good. One even covered for me while I was sick. That's very sweet of him. And my family's great. I got some weird cousins, but I can love them. I can, I can come to love them. I can, I can do this. But here in Luke 6, Jesus can't be more clear. He's not just talking about the people in the church. He's not just talking about the people around you. He conjures up the people that you have problems with. He, said, he says, love your enemies. That means that every person that you have issues with is on this list. Every person you have issues with, Jesus is demanding us to love. So now we need to extend that a little wider. That means the guy who cuts you off in traffic on the way to foundation, you have to love him. That means that the political commentator that you strenuously disagree with, you have to love him. That means that the current president of the United States, you have to love him. Jesus says you are to love your enemies. Jesus says we need to love our enemies very clearly. There is no exception clause in this statement. There's no exception clause to, okay, well, the president is a public figure. Well, my boss, he's not a Christian, so I don't really need to love him. This is Christian enemies. No, Jesus says you need to love your enemies. It's a simple statement. But I'm not sure that we read it without qualifying it. I'm not sure that we read it without adding conditions, without excluding certain people that we have a hard time loving. See, it's so easy to read simple but hard commands and then to reshape them so that I'm actually still okay, that I don't have anything to change. But we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to be honest with God. We have to ask ourselves hard questions. We have to ask ourselves things that expose whether we truly love our enemies. We have to ask questions like, Do I enjoy, do I experience schadenfreude in the mockery of our president, who Peter says we are supposed to honor? Is that what love looks like? Is that what a Christian is supposed to look like? Paul tells us in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So someone cuts me off on the freeway and I'm I'm muttering under my breath. Is that what being at peace with all men looks like? Can I ever truly love someone if I'm not doing my utmost to be at peace with him? See, what I'm afraid of, and this is why I want to talk about this tonight, is that in our polarized culture, it's too easy for Christians to start thinking like the world and maybe to start hating our enemies the same way the world does. I'm afraid that as we lose sight of our only mission on earth, because we only have one, that's to make disciples, we begin to see the world more and more through the lens of politics. Or maybe we see the, uh, the world through the lens of the culture wars. Or maybe we just see it through our petty wants and our comforts, like I want to get to foundation on time, and so I'm justified in my anger at someone on the freeway. 
See, this is something very personal. This is something that I've noticed in myself because I started to realize when I hear myself talk about someone else of another political persuasion or people of a different philosophical bent or even of my neighbors, I had to stop and think, is this how I would talk to them in person? Are these the sort of things that I would say about someone else if I, if I had to have a real relationship with them? And is that what love looks like? Is that what love of your enemies looks like? See, we recite mantras as Christians, right? We say very commonly, love the sinner, hate the sin. Love the sinner, hate the sin. I think that's good. I think it's a good principle. But are we being honest with ourselves? Are we applying this to ourselves when we talk about people who are plagued with the sin of transgenderism? Or is the only thing in our mouths mockery and ridicule? Is there no compassion in our hearts for these people? If our mouths truly speak from that which fills the heart, as Jesus says further in Luke 6, then what does it mean if all I have to say about sinners is ridicule and mockery? What does it mean if all I can say about my political enemies is nasty and mean-spirited? Am I smiling at sinners at work and then cursing them at home? That's really the question we have to ask ourselves. Am I a conservative, theological justice warrior on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit? Am I destroying people? Am I, am I throwing facts at the haters and not really reflecting what the love of Christ looks like? Is that what love looks like? I think that this can become an issue for us. I think it comes from the culture that we're in, for sure. But let's not pretend that there was ever a time when people were in harmony with each other in this nation, in the world. Sin has always existed. Hatred has always existed. And there are, of course, hard lines that we have to draw, primarily around false teachers who are trying to sneak into the churches to pervert the gospel. Absolutely, we draw hard lines around that. And secondarily, we draw hard lines around physical threats. The first issue is a matter of protecting the purity of the gospel. The second is a matter of wisdom, okay? But outside of that, too often I think we forget that Scripture's clear teaching tells us we need to treat and think about our enemies with an attitude of love. Because we are of the truth, we can't assume we're justified in harsh attitudes, harsh hatred of our enemies. Because if we skip to Luke Luke 6.32, we'll see, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. So we see that Jesus has all of this covered. He knows our hearts. He knows what we're going to go to. We're going to try to find excuses for ourselves. But he says, that's how the world loves. That's not how we love. If you want to love that way, you're in the wrong religion. You can go start your own, but you can't call it Christianity if your Christianity allows you to hate your enemies. Because Jesus says it's the sinners who don't love their enemies. So we have to ask ourselves tonight, as we look at Jesus' clear teaching, we have to ask ourselves, which am I? Which am I? Do I love my enemies, or do I only love those who already love me? Is my love reserved for those who are already in my fold, in my ethnicity, in in my social groups? Or is my love for all my neighbors, and particularly, do I love my enemies? So now we can move on establishing this, realizing, I hope, that we really need to check ourselves and make sure that our attitudes are correct. We can move on to what Jesus says we have to do in our love for our enemies. He explains how to love our enemies. That's in verse 27. Here Jesus teaches us to do good to those who hate you. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Okay, so what does that look like? 
Now, I think we could easily make a very long list of all the nice things that you could do and the sermon would never end. There are plenty of nice things you can do and you can contextualize them to your relationships. But I think it's easier to recognize what would not be something that accords with love. What would not be a good thing to do to someone who hates you? So primarily, I'm going to say that doing good to those who hate us means we don't take revenge. That's the first principle of what we must do to those who hate us. We must not take revenge. Revenge is one of the most popular themes in our culture when it comes to storytelling. Is that right? Some, if you go to the movie theater, some of the best films you're going to see are going to be all about revenge. You could name a list. I started to look at a list and I was like, okay, those are all R-rated. I'm not going to name them all. But instead, I will mention the Gladiator. Okay, the Gladiator is relatively tame, I guess. Uh, the Gladiator was a personal favorite in high school. I watched it many times, right? Gladiator is a wonderful tale of how a man's family was killed. And so he wants to get back at the evil emperor who did this. Nice tale. Has a very easy to understand plot for us. We understand a beginning portrayal, a nice montage of training and development, making some friends, and then we kill the guy in the end. Amazing. I'm sorry if that's a spoiler. It's been out for like 30 years or something. Okay. So we understand this. Our culture puts value in revenge. Revenge is a virtue in our culture. You know who the good guy is because he's been wronged and therefore he is justified in his revenge. But Paul tells us in Romans 12, 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. It's God who takes revenge. Quoting from Deuteronomy 32, he says, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says Yahweh. It is the Lord's responsibility to take revenge. What is our responsibility? To do good to those who hate us. All sin will someday be punished if it wasn't already punished in Christ course, but we are not the spiritual avengers. What the Bible calls us to is to be the peacemakers in our society. So what does that mean? It means if you've been backstabbed at work, you don't find a way to ruin your coworkers' next work project. It means that if your neighbor leaves trash in front of his door in your tight apartment hallway every single day, you don't add your trash pile to his to send him a message. I've thought it many times. This is not how I should act, though. We need to remember that we are to do good to those who hate us. I don't think my neighbor hates me, but um, he's not exactly showing me love by messing up the hallway, okay? A second principle of what we should do when we're doing good to those who hate us is we must remember that returning good for evil requires sincerity because love is sincere. Paul says in Romans 12, 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. So if we work backwards from there, if love doesn't include hypocrisy, that means that our good deeds towards those who hate us need to be sincere. If I take the example of me piling up my garbage with my neighbor's garbage to teach him, like, this isn't cool, what am, I, what am I really doing there? I'm trying to get back at him. Well, okay, let's turn it around. Let's say that I knock on his door and I say, hey, just so you know, this is very disrespectful. It really bothers me. It doesn't smell nice. I'm going to take it out for you, though. Don't worry. I already took it out for you, actually. I'm a great person. You're the worst one. And I'm going to post a long-form post on, about you in the Neighborhood Watch app, okay? That would not be sincere. That is not what love looks like. That's not what doing good to those who hate us looks like. We can't find ways to do good for our enemy just so that we can receive praise or to make that person look foolish because love must be sincere, Doing good must be sincere. It must be for the glory of Christ. It must be for your gospel witness. 
And thirdly, we need to remember that there is divine blessing in righteous suffering. So maybe you hear this and you say, okay, but you don't know this person I know at work. You don't know this family member. I understand we all have very different trials. We have very different relationships in our life. But we need to look at 1 Peter 3.14 to see what Peter says about righteous suffering. He says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. He says, if you suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Now, in this context, if we're thinking about not taking revenge on our enemies, can you imagine the shame if we do evil to those who want to do evil to us? Peter outlines, he says in 1 Peter 3.17, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. That is not what a Christian does. A Christian does not go out of his way to get revenge on someone, and then he ends up justifying every slander that was laid against you. He justifies every picture that was laid against you. Because now, not only are you a Christian, but you're a sinner and a hypocrite too. You've lost all your witness. So Peter says, you are actually blessed if you suffer for the sake of righteousness. This is the attitude we have to have when we're dealing with our enemies, whoever we construe them to be. Now, I said before, I um, have some frustrations with my neighbors right now. They don't treat our hallway very nicely, and sometimes it's like a little dumping ground. And uh, literally, they leave their trash out so much, sometimes it disappears. And I, I just think, like, is there, do they have a special cleaning crew that takes it out? Because I don't know when this is happening. I've never seen it disappear, okay? But thinking about my neighbors and thinking about this text, I was starting to get reminded of uh, something that, hap- that I saw in Israel. I was reminded of some dear Christians that I met in Israel. And their names are Helmut and Miriam. Helmut and Miriam. Helmut and Miriam are one of the sweetest couples that I've ever met, and they truly form the backbone of the church that we were a part of in Jerusalem for the last few years. Now, Helmut and Miriam live in an apartment building nearby church, and they were kind enough to invite us over for lunch after church um, several times while we were there. And the first time we got to their apartments, we were very impressed. So if you haven't been to Israel, or if you've only been to the nice, clean, touristy bits, Israel is very dusty, Okay. Israel is not naturally very clean, and sometimes it feels like people don't care if it is also um, intentionally not very clean. They're not cleaning up very, very often in a lot of places. The streets aren't super clean. The hallways aren't super clean, okay? So we got to Helmut and Miriam's apartment, and the building was squeaky clean. It had a really nice, well-taken-care-of garden in the front. This is not super common in just a normal apartment. It's not some luxury residence, okay? No other building looks like that on the street, just theirs. So I brought it up. I asked them, I was like, wow, you have a really nice place. Do you guys have, like, some HOA fee? Do you have some team that comes and takes care of the apartments? And they said, no, this is just what we do for our neighbors. They said, we clean everything, and um, we take care of the garden because we want to be a good witness to our neighbors. And when you walk through, on every floor, on every hallway, they've put in nice potted plants, they've mopped everything, so everything is nice and clean. Hamilton and Miriam are an amazing witness to their neighbors. You have to remember that Israel is a Jewish nation. Israel's government and a lot of uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews don't look super kindly on Christians. They especially don't look kindly on Christians who work for a church. Helmut works for a church. They also don't look very kindly on people who evangelize. They consider it anti-Semitic. Helmut evangelizes. But you don't have anything that you can cast against Helmut in his neighborhood. 
Helmholtz has an amazing relationship with his neighbors purely based on the love that he shows for them and taking care of everything in the building. Then there's me. Um, so yesterday I looked to see if they took the trash out. It was gone. I couldn't help. I couldn't try to rectify this in time for the sermon. But you understand the problem. You understand the problem. The problem is that there are ways for us to do good to others, and there are ways for us to take revenge on others. And the Bible's calling us not to do that. The Bible's calling us to do good to those who hate us. Luke 6.31, uh, moving on in the passage, Jesus says, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. And then in verse 33, again, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is it to you? For even sinners do the same. I'm sure that not all of Hamilton Miriam's neighbors are as wonderful as they are. But they have a consistent testimony in their neighborhood that they love their neighbors, that they take care of things that they don't have to, that they're not called to, that's not their responsibility. So we have to look for opportunities, do things like this, do things that show that you love your neighbors, not that you hate them, not that you are ready to take revenge on the people around you. Let's move us on to verse 28. Now we're getting to um, more the prayer aspect of how we are to treat our enemies. So finally, the Lord calls us to bless and pray for enemies. Verse 28, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Now, we'll treat these two together because they are essentially the same thing. These are both forms of prayer, blessing and prayer. We can tell that the word bless here is essentially a form of prayer because of what it's contrasted by, right? Jesus says, bless those who curse you. Bless those who curse you. Now, we know what cursing is. I think we hear it all the time. Um, you've maybe have heard things like, maybe in our COVID example, I wish that person would just die. I wish that the virus would get them. Or maybe more strongly in person, you've heard something like, I hope you burn in hell. Cursing is asking for bad things to happen to somebody. Now, I don't know who the secular world is hoping will fulfill all these requests for cursing, um, but we know what Jesus is talking about, right? We've seen it. We've seen all sort of cursing. We've seen all sorts of wishing evil on people in our society, in our culture. But Jesus is commanding us to do the exact opposite of that. He says we are to pray for those who curse us. We're to pray for those who curse us. And because of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, let's not forget, we actually have a special privilege in our approach to God in prayer. If we remember Hebrews 4.16, the author writes, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. And he's talking about on, on behalf of Christ, because we have the blood of Christ, because we have a great high priest, we are able to go before God. This is something that no one else in the world can do. This is something that the Jews no longer can do. They don't have a temple. They don't have the ability to go before God. Muslim religion will not bring you to God, but Jesus Christ's sacrifice, his blood, his resurrection on your account can bring you before God. People are cursing you. They have no power over you. And yet Jesus says, you who have all the power to speak to God, he says, you are to bless those who curse you. He says, you are to pray to the God that we can speak to and pray on their behalf. And we know James 5.16 says, the prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. This is the power that's been bestowed upon us. And Jesus says, it needs to be turned towards the good of even your enemies. We even need to pray for our enemies. I think Paul showed that he truly believed this in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4 reads, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of just the brethren, 
No, not just the brethren. He says, on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, in the sight of Jesus Christ, who taught us to bless those who curse us and to pray for those who persecute us. God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What Jesus is teaching us is that instead of returning evil for evil, instead of cursing our enemies, God commands us to pray for their good, for their salvation. Now, if you had a chance to come last week, you know that Caleb asked us, do we pray? He asked the question, do you pray? I think we can add to the question now. We can ask, do we pray for our enemies? We can ask, do we pray for the president? Do we pray that judgment would come upon him, that he would have an early death, or do we pray that God would bless him? Do we pray that God would give him wisdom? And do we pray for his salvation? Do we pray for our governor? Do we pray for our local counselors? Do we pray for the police that we pass by? Do we pray for our enemies around us? Do we pray for anyone outside of ourselves? Jesus says you need to pray for those who persecute you. We need to examine ourselves and see, are we like Jesus and Stephen, who when they were at the point of death, they were asking God to forgive their enemies. They used their ability to pray to the Most High God, and they said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen, his last words as he was murdered in Acts chapter 7 by the Jews, he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do not hold this sin against them. He is murdered, and he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, I want to remind us, who was there when Stephen was killed? When Stephen was murdered for preaching the gospel to the Jews, for preaching the good news of Jesus as the Messiah coming to save them from their sins, there was a young man in attendance, a good Jewish boy. His name was Saul. Saul took extreme pleasure in the killing of Stephen. Saul experienced absolute schadenfreude before the term ever existed. But his delight in the death of Saul wouldn't be satisfied, in the death of Stephen, sorry, wouldn't be satisfied until every last Christian in Jerusalem was dead. And so when we read in Acts, in um, Acts chapter 8 and 9, Saul went house after house dragging people to prison to be beaten, to be tortured, to be killed because they belonged to Christ. And still he wasn't satisfied. He had rooted out everyone he could in Jerusalem. They were fleeing to the countryside. They were fleeing to different cities. So Saul went after them. He went to the high priest and he asked for permission to carry out his persecution in the next metropolis over. He said, I'm going to go to Damascus. I'm going to follow these guys and I'm going to bring them to prison. I'm going to bring them to justice because they believe in Jesus. I'm a good Jewish boy. I know that this isn't the real Messiah. I know that the truth is on my side. All of my hatred is entirely justified. Permission granted. So Saul goes off to Damascus. He's a hotshot. He's doing what everybody wants him to do. He's getting results. He's a little overzealous, but he's doing what people want. He's getting rid of the Christians. And then when he's almost there, a flash of light erupts from the heavens and a voice cries out. Paul is confronted by the very person that he's persecuting, by the very Lord of the people that he's persecuting. Now, does anyone remember at all from your Bible reading, from Sunday school, what did Jesus say to Saul? 
Remember, he said, Saul, you are the greatest enemy of the church. You are literally moments away from murdering my people in Damascus, and you are entirely worthy of hell. And so to protect my people, to protect the church, I cast you to hell this moment. It wasn't a very good snap, but he burned to a crisp right there. And that was the end of Saul. It's a different version of the Bible than you've heard because that's not what happened, right? Jesus, in all of his heavenly splendor, in all of his majestic radiance, he is the almighty God. He comes before Saul. Saul is struck blind on the road. And what does he say to him? What, how do we expect the story to end? We expect judgment. We expect protection for the church. But what does Jesus do? He asks him a question. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus had every right. Jesus had every ability. He had every possibility to get rid of Saul once and for all. And I'm sure everyone in the church would have been happy to say that great persecutor is gone. That great enemy of this fledgling new church is gone. For the protection of the church, Jesus got rid of Saul. And we see in the Old Testament many times when God does get rid of enemies who are attacking Israel. And we see many times in the New Testament when saints are prevented from getting persecuted or prevented from being martyred by God's grace. So this is valid. This is okay. But we see here, Jesus shows his great love towards the greatest enemy up to that point of the church. He shows his love towards Saul. And he turns the greatest Jewish persecutor of the church into the sweetest evangelist to the Gentiles. He's the most Jewish of the Jews. He's the most Pharisaical of the Pharisees. And Jesus says, I will take you and I will turn you into my ambassador to the people that you don't even love, that you hate. I will send you to the Gentiles. See, when Paul commands us in the scripture to love and pray for enemies, like we saw many times we had to reference Romans 12, when he commands us to love our enemies, to be at peace with all men, to pray for our enemies, it's because Paul had firsthand experience from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew the teaching of Jesus and he experienced Jesus' love for himself. The question is, have we learned from Jesus how to love our enemies? Paul learned the lesson well, but have we learned to love our enemies? Do we have the heart of Jesus? Don't forget, you are no better than Saul, who we call Paul now. The only difference between you and your unbelieving enemy is God's grace. It's absolutely unmerited favor because you were not saved on any account of yourself. We ourselves, scripture says, were once the enemies of God. You can look at Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, Paul says, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Paul says, we were the enemies of God. You may think that you're no worse off than Paul, but God says, you were all my enemies. You were all my enemies and Jesus reconciled you to God. So let's not forget that God may yet save our enemies as well. If he can save Paul, he can save any enemy you can imagine. And you can be the greatest ambassador of Christ precisely to your enemies. You have a unique opportunity to show them love in a way that the world will not expect. The world has heard these stories many times, but it's a different thing to experience the love of Christ in your life. We have to consider our enemies to be opportunities for evangelism. These are opportunities to show Christ's love. 
And let us never forget that God does not experience schadenfreude. He doesn't experience this love of the misery of others in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 33, 11, the Lord says, As I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die? This is the Lord's heart for those who are in sin. This is the Lord's heart for those who are not his, those who are even his enemies. The Lord wants people to turn to him. The Lord wants to use us as his ambassadors of love in the world, to show Christ's love, to have opportunities for evangelism in your coworkers' lives, in your family's lives, in your enemies' lives. We need to strive to be more like Christ, who showed the greatest love towards his enemies. So I quote Paul again in Romans 5, verse 8. He says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, your word is open and clear for us to see. Nothing here is astounding. Nothing here is surprising. Nothing here is too difficult for us to understand. None of it's new, Lord. We've heard it all before. We know that we are to love one another. We know that we're to love our neighbors, and we know that we are to love our enemies. Lord, I pray that you would transform us to be people who love the same way that Christ loves. Help us, Lord, to talk about the people in our lives, to talk about the people that we have difficulty with, to talk to them in ways that show your love. Lord, help us not to be hypocrites. Help us not to be hypocrites who attack people when we know that we have logs in our own eyes. Lord, help us to be humble, to bring the gospel with grace, with truth. Help us, Lord, to spread your word, to be ambassadors who are ready to fight for your gospel, but who are ready to do it always with love. Lord, help us also as we have a storm raging. I pray that you would bring us all safely home. Help us, Lord, to get home and to reflect on what we've learned Help us to enjoy some rest tomorrow so that we come back and worship together as a church on Sunday morning. In Jesus' sweet name we pray, amen.